river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through Brian Moore. Yes, sir. Welcome to the California Hunting Podcast. I mean, the TradQuest Podcast. What's going on, buddy? Yeah. That's uh, good. How are you guys doing? Good. Excellent. Good. So, uh, what's going on down there in Cali? Uh, it's hot, and uh, I'm going pig hunting tomorrow for some reason, and it's going to be like 106, so hopefully it's a quick trip in the morning. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. So, yeah. How's your how's your season been unfolding down there? Uh, it was a good season. I had a good turkey season. Was able to uh, shoot some nice birds here in California, and then I did a Michigan trip. I actually did a shotgun hunt in Michigan trip. It's not trad quest, but it's <laughs> my first uh, out of state bird on a ranch that I got invited to, and and then uh, did some pig hunting uh, a few months ago down in Mariposa, California, with a with uh, some friends of mine over at Kuyu and we were able to, you know, shoot some uh, nice boars and rolled into my A-zone season, which is our California coast season, which is open the second weekend in July and and uh, was able to sneak in on a nice, a couple nice bucks uh, opening night and uh, made a good shot on, on one of the two bucks. The smaller of the two, but I wasn't I wasn't too picky, so they were both nice nice horns. So now I'm just kind of trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. I didn't draw anything. I, I got invited today uh, to go to Catalina Island um, sometime between uh, October and November. So probably going to do that, and for sure go to Michigan for probably three weeks hunting whitetails. But yeah, uh, lots of uh, lots of money spent on points all over the place and no tags again so that's getting old well you, you got an oregon license you might as well buy a roosevelt tag and come uh, try your luck on the coast that's a very good uh uh chance i've, I've got to pick up a uh a car in uh spokane uh, my my mom lives there and i drive it home it's a little two-seater bmw convertible so that would be a great elk hunting rig for a uh, short four or five day hunt, probably. <laughs> oh, dude. Well, I'll be uh, pushing black huckleberry and blackberry and devil's club and and vine maple uh, straight on down the slippery slope of Western Oregon for Roosevelt's and blacktails. Well, that's fun. I've done that several times. You got pine needles everywhere by the end of the day and you're soaking wet. Yep, yep, yep. Should be good. Should be good. Uh, I'm uh, still trying to dial in bows. Don't even know I'm a hot mess, but it's all good. I'm I'm excited. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's just I'm too multi- many too many cool good bows out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is. I've got like 40 on the wall, and I'm always rotating. So it's yeah, fun. Uh, well, speaking of Catalina Island and and California, the Golden State, um, you'd uh, hooked us up with. Uh, Mike Harrison, and this is an intro for uh, our uh, 
episode we did with Mike. So yeah, we appreciate oh. you hooking up with hooking us up with Mike because uh, he was a hoot. Yeah, cool. Yeah, Mike's a Mike's a great guy. I it's funny I met and I don't really remember it. I just remember the guys like in I think it was eighty nine or ninety. First time I went to Catalina Island. Uh, was in this toy on camp and our guide's name was Bruno and he had two big camps from archery shops. I went with one out of uh, Fresno called impact archery. And I think they were with like Bob prom or something out of uh, orange County or something. And I, there was, there was three other stick bow guys in camp and I believe it was Mike, Jason and Adam Hairston. And, uh, but, but I never saw those guys, you know, it just was like dark cause they were gone in the morning first truck out of there. And, you know, the last truck back and I mean, they were just animals. So, um, but I, uh, you know, it was, it was many years later at a, at a Dixon Mayfair here in California where I ran into Jason again, we started talking about stuff and hunts. I'm like, I, I, you know, and then you run into Mike and start telling stories. I'm like, you were the guys that I met way back in the day. He was pretty much on every hunt on that island back in the, you know, back in the the nineties and probably eighties and, I mean, he's been hunting yeah, there for 69, years. 69 or 70 sounds like the first time he went out to Catalina. So. Oh, well that, that's about right. I went there two years ago with him and went into some of the areas that we were hunting mule deer, that he was hunting uh, goats, and he was telling me stories and running up and down some of these. And that stuff is vertical. I mean, it's it's no joke. It's, uh, it's scary and treacherous, and you look at it and you go, oh, I don't think so. I don't want to walk down there. I mean, I... I it almost looks like you need repelling gear. And, you know, I remember some of those guys back in the day, just running up and down that stuff. There was some old pro athletes, football guys that I remember seeing and just running it like it was nothing. And, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's cool country for sure. Uh, you opened up the door pro athletes like yourself. Uh, <laughs> I forgot yeah. about that. The black tail boys, uh, the black tail uh, boys, to think about that. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, you know, I didn't ask Mike, but how old do you suppose Mike is? I should know that. I think he's 74, 73, 74. Yeah. I think that's a guess. I, I'm just okay. I'm just I'm I'm just uh, going back from. Um, I think he's about that age. He might be a little older, okay. but I don't think so. Okay, well, he's still working and still shooting the bow like a madman. Um, it was really cool talking to him about, uh, you know, how into into archery he still is at his age and just wanting to get out every single day and. He loves shooting moving targets and squirrels and stump shooting and and he's, his passion is uh, is you know just really really uh, uh, impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Mike is. Uh, I love sitting and talking with him. He's got stories from you know way back and you know from Arctic Red shooting doll sheep to ground squirrels in his yard to Catalina and mule deer and elk and. Um, him and Jason did a great, you know, moose hunt five, six years ago. And it's, uh, he, the guy's a book of knowledge when it comes to traditional archery and the passion that he still has for shooting a longbow and wooden arrows and, 
you know, hand sharpening his broadheads and he's, he'll sit down after he misses an animal and sharpen the broadhead on the side of a mountain. And, uh, he is, he is, uh, definitely old school. And every time I'm around him, I'm learning something new, you know, um, he is, uh, he's a fun guy to share a campfire with. That's for sure. Well, you know him well, because we covered every single bit of what you just said. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a great conversation. I'm looking forward to getting down there and sharing a campfire with you guys and maybe chasing some pigs or something this winter. Oh, that'd be a blast. Yeah. The, the, the I'm going tomorrow morning, but the pig hunting, you know, it comes and goes and we've talked about hunting pigs for many years. And, uh, right now they're really on the decline in some of the ranches and, uh, there's, there was tons of acorns last year and just no hogs. Um, the Artuli elk are rutting right now and they're chasing and bugling. So I'm kind of going more to listen, you know, check that out and listen to them in the morning and see if I can find a pig on, you know, there's like two water spots on the whole ranch. So, but, uh, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, hopefully this winter they're, you know, they're starting to show back up in some spots. That would that would be great. I went down a few weeks ago, as you know, and uh, past the Robles, San Luis Obispo area, and Morro Bay, and I did see um, along the Highway 101 on Camp Roberts uh, uh, a big old group of hogs and some tule elk, a bunch of bulls, and um, but all the ranches I went to weren't holding water, so they weren't holding pigs, and they told me to come back in the winter time or spring, so. Yeah, we're 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 in a you know pretty good drought right now. I mean, there's there's just no water. All the creeks, my blacktail ranch, it's drying up. I think the deer, just all the lakes are out on the ranch are dry, and there's a little bit of water in the creeks, and they're probably drinking out of the, some of the cattle troughs, and it's kind of like that everywhere right now. Um, antelope hunters here in a few weeks, if they can find some water, are probably going to do really good. <laughs> copy that well um yeah well uh, we once again appreciate you hooking us up with mike and um i think uh you know we'll have to definitely get him back on another time and we'll have to catch up with you again and um hopefully uh we can our paths can cross this september and go chase some rush bulls around yeah absolutely i um that's probably going to be a plan since i'm I really have nothing going on, like I said, so that's uh, what I'm leaning towards. Probably one of the only places I guess I could, at least this year, I could buy a tag and across the counter and go hunting. So that's probably where I'm going to end up. So hope to hope to run into you guys there. Awesome. Not Bob. Sounds He'll good, be dude. Hunting many tags all over the everywhere else. It sounds like so. Yeah, yeah. I won't be in the jungle. You guys have fun. <laughs> Bob, yeah. but Bob will be in the Bob will be in the land of milk and honey while, while yeah. we're getting so yeah, wet. I'll, I'll be riding the gravy train, and you guys will be uh, beating the brush. Somebody's got to do it, life, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, good luck on your oh, adventures, guys. Uh, hopefully, yeah, uh, thanks, buddy. You too. Uh, well, we'll be hopefully be seeing you soon. And thanks, thanks for coming on. And uh, once again, thanks for introducing us to Mike. Uh, Wealth of knowledge. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. All right. All right, guys. Have a good night. Bye. Mike Harrison. Mike Harrison is here. How are you doing? We're doing great. 
I've got uh, Bob Borland on here as well. Good. Hey, Mike. Thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. We've uh, talked about getting you on here for a long time, and we're glad we finally got your number and bugged you to get on here. Well, uh, it's a topic I love talking about, just like you guys. (laughs) It's, 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 It's not the most important thing in my life, but I can't think of anything that's more important. (laughs) <laughs> i love that well, i love that as well well uh i know just from talking with uh, our mutual friend brian morris that uh he tells us you're quite the storyteller and we spoke on the phone a few times and it sounds like you've got a lot of good ones so i'm looking forward to getting into a couple today and um but why don't we start off with uh like a little introduction tell us uh who mike harrison is and how you fell in love with the bow and arrow. I was raised and born in, in Southern California, which you'd think it'd be the last place on earth that you'd evolve into a hunter. But when I was born here, it was mostly open land. And it was the beginning of the development of neighborhoods where builders were coming out and they buy huge tracts of land and then start developing your master plans and so forth. What it left hundreds and hundreds of acres of deserted farmland around my home. So I'd always liked bows and arrows and you can pick your bow up and hike through those uh, fields and nobody cared. We had jackrabbits and quail and doves and it was a great place for a young kid to just learn the nuances of, of how animals react to you and what you have to do to get close. And, uh, so it was a, it was a great opportunity for me to, you know, at, at 10 or 11 years of age to shoot a lot of arrows at a lot of animals. That's awesome. Well, what, who were the, some of the earlier influences that, you know, where you got the ideas of bow hunting from? Well, I, when I, I also pitched little league baseball, which I, I think, you know, the hand eye coordination is the same, but one of the, one of the guys, uh, uncles was a bow, uh, not only a bow hunter, but an arrow maker. And I was 12 years old and, um, he hooked me up with Doug Kittredge and Jim Doherty up in Pasadena. And, um, I think it was the Fleetwood arrow kit. They would send you the makings for 13 arrows. And I just started fabricating my own arrows. I, um, got the catalog from the Kittredge bow hut and, you know, started saving for better and better bows. And by age 12, I I had taken my hunter's safety course. And uh, <laughs> opening day, my dad dropped me off in the mountains and said, you picked me up at night. So that was the start of it. And wow. so, Mike, did, well, did your father hunt at all? My dad did hunt. Um, born in Texas, but but during the Depression. And um, that hunting was really almost a necessity for that for for his family to survive so he grew up doing it um he uh, was a heck of a rifle shot and when i got into archery he actually became a very good bow shot and and he understood um my desire to hunt there was no question about that there was no there were no obstacles to that he would drive me up to la county uh when i was too young to drive and i'd hunt those mountains um um, above, uh, you know, Pasadena and Glendora for deer. Uh, so he, he facilitated uh, all of my archery trips, built me a target in the backyard. So he was a great um, 
a great mentor and, and, and facilitated me just getting immersed in, in traditional archery. Oh, that's cool. We we had a gentleman by the name of David DeVille on who's from the LA County area. And it's always just really interesting to hear about, you know, guys archery hunting in a place that most people think of as Hollywood, you know, concrete jungle. <laughs> I'll tell you a great story. Uh, uh, this is two or three years ago. I have been tracking this bear England, or I would say probably three, four seasons. And we'd all see his tracks and just could not get lined up on him. And so about two years ago, I'm on a ridge kind of in the region that he, he comes up and here he comes. And it, 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 the, at first I thought it was a brown bush rolling from side to side. This thing was so big that he rolled. And, um, in fact, a buddy of mine was, that I didn't know was there was above me on the hill and he's had a lot of bear. And he said later that bear was probably 450 pounds. And this thing came closer and closer. I put an arrow on and as it got closer, I could see the gray in his face and I could kind of see him not limping, but just struggling up the sill. Right. And I, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to shoot this bear. So he got 30 or 40 yards away from me. I'm on his trail, literally. And I said, hey, what are you doing? He just looked at me. And almost with a look like, well, thanks a lot. You're standing on my trail. He had to go off this hill, climb up another hill that was so steep. He had to stop and look back at me, and he was winded. And uh, I let him go. And that was probably one of the greatest experiences I've ever had because I saw him two weeks later. And it was just, it was, it was really fun to finally catch that animal and then have the opportunity to let him go so I could see him again. So it was really cool. And that's, that's LA. And if you looked up from that bear, you'd see all the high story buildings in downtown Los Angeles. And I mean, we shot 20, 30 deer out of those hills I have. And I hunted back there since the early seventies, uh, you know, late sixties, it was a, a, a two deer areas at some point and um you'd see 30 deer a day and you you knew you were going to come home with a deer or an empty quiver every time you went out (laughs) (laughs) so did the did the hunting continue for you through through uh your teenage years or oh yeah I, i i hunted until i ended up in utah playing football and football was so consuming. I didn't get to do much hunting. I did some. Um, but when I got back, the, the season opened immediately. Uh, the timing was good. And uh, I went back to an old ranch in uh, Orange County opening morning and shot a really nice big uh, fork and horn with my brother with me. And um, <laughs> this deer was leaping over something when I shot him. It was in the air. And um, it was a, uh, it was the first deer I had shot with my bow, and it was such a blur that, and I had such an adrenaline rush, um, I really didn't know what to do. And out of nowhere um, comes a guy named Bart who hunted the ranch. I didn't know him. And he says, "You hit that deer," and I said, "He said, have you had any experience doing this?" I said, "No." And that man stopped me, 
told me how to look down the hill, look at the path the deer would have followed. Um, and we tracked that thing down and around, and all of a sudden it started, trail started zigzagging. He said, get an arrow out. This deer's going to lay down. Uh, he took off before we could hit him again and then rolled on down this canyon. And we went down and picked him up. I'm going to tell you, uh, and you guys have been there, you put your hands around the horns of your first buck, and there is, there's not a words to describe how that feels. And um, I just enjoyed the entire thing, where we, we, we obviously gutted the deer, um, drug it down, and this is interesting, I had a brand new Volkswagen bus, right? So we get down there, and Bart goes, well, what are you going to do? Oh, I said, I'm putting in the bus. This my deer. I'll put up with the heat when I get home, but this deer's going to my bus, right? So we went down. I got him checked out at the, the fire department and took him home. And uh, it was just, it's one of those things that's imprinted in your brain forever, which I think, uh, uh, I think traditional archery has a lot to do with that. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you played some college football. Is that what you were referring to? I played linebacker at Utah. And um, I was an average player. I mean, I got to start, you know, some games. But um, um, the only good thing about it is I broke a lot of bones. And um, as a result, I'm in the training room. So ultimately, I became a physical therapist since you know, I, I treated about every injury a human could have. And it's been a good job for me. I, I do, we do just basically weightlifting and strength training. And um, I get guys in that are hunters. I know immediately what they're trying to do and, and, and what needs they have and that kind of thing. So it's fun for me. And you're still, still doing that today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, a, afraid to retire cause I don't want to come home and work for a woman, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're a smart man, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I the, the opinions vary. I think that was Patrick Swayze's line. Opinions vary. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know uh a lot of people um will come to find out if they don't already know who you are you raised uh jason harrison the founder of kuyu gear and and raised him as a bow hunter and your uh grandson cash is bow hunting and so obviously you stayed passionate about bow hunting through through your ears and raised your uh, family as bow hunters i know this would make me sound like some type of crazy person but I shoot my bow every day, sometimes multiple times a day because of where I live. And because I've got 25 acres and we've got all kinds of different wild animals on the property, I never go outside with my, without my bow. And um, it, it lets me take a lot of running shots of squirrels and, sh- you know, just stump shooting. You guys know that, you know, people go, well, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're if you going to shoot traditional, you need to practice. And, and and to me, shooting the bow is in practice. It's what I love to do. And when you get a clean release and that arrow flies perfectly, it must be what a great guitarist does when he hits the chord just right. Um, and just the flight of a perfect arrow and a nice hit on a, on a piece of wood is just a joy, at least to me. So it's not... Um, you know, something, well, I, you know, I better go practice. I got a hunt coming up. It's something I, I do every night to relax. I know you've uh, gotten out there and hunted uh, outside of California. And uh, 
it was recommended to me that you had a pretty good story to share about a uh, a hunt a long time ago on a doll sheep. I'd love to uh, hear that one if you yeah, I, to I, it. Yeah, well, I, I, I kind of touched around the edges of it, but, but I think, and um, like I was talking to a guy this morning, one of our guys back in, in Michigan, about, you know, he wants to, he's a, he's a whitetail hunter and wants to know where to go next. And, um, and what I'm about to tell you is where I would send him. Um, I used to uh, do a lot of elk hunting um, at Old Glendivy Ranch, which is up on the Colorado-Wyoming border, maybe eight, 9,000 feet, um, with uh, Garth Peterson. And I would always go to the elk shows and work behind the booth with Garth, and directly across was Arctic Red River Outfitters. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they've been around forever. And um, I got to know Kelly Hogan and all the guys, and uh, those hunts in then were expensive. I mean, in those days, it was a ten, twelve thousand dollar hunt. I just didn't have the money, and um, and it was a rifle. He basically told me it was a rifle only area. Well, several years later, my dad unexpectedly passed away, and things like that will really make you do a little soul searching. And so I. Um, sitting there wondering what my dad didn't get done. And I'm sitting there going, you know, I, I got to go with Sheepman. So next show I go up to Kelly and I said, what's your, dad, what's your deposit on your hunt? So he told me, he said, who's going? I said, I'm going. And he just looked at me. And it, it took two years to get there. He says, you know, this is a gun area. Yeah, I know. And he just looked at me. And he says, you're going to bring your own dog. Yep. And I'll see you in two years. <laughs> so I went. And it's it's a it's a phenomenal group of people. It still is a great place, and the hunters there were international. I mean, this is big doll sheep. These guys are shooting sheep. They've got phenomenal weapons, and they thought I was going fishing <laughs> because I had this what looked like a fishing pole holder, right? It's my longbow, and so um, we go in, we sight out, you know, sight in at the range and all that stuff. So we get delivered to our our guides out in the middle of nowhere. We fly different directions, single-seat airplane. We fly in through these canyons. I get out of the plane, and the guy goes, where's your gun? I said, I'm using a longbow. That was the last thing he said to me for about two days. And um, <laughs> so, and I can handle that. I, I'm not, that doesn't bother me even slightly. So the first day out, we start up this mountain, and all of a sudden, I get hit in the cheek with a chunk of ice. I look up, and here's this black, oily, rolling storm coming at us. And it's an ice storm. And I looked at him. I said, What's, what tent do you have? It's a North Face Four Season. I said, I know the tent. Let me do the poles. And he thinks I'm from L.A. He thinks we, 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 we never get off the asphalt and concrete, right? So in between the two of us, in 10 or 15 minutes, we're in this, this tent. We're in there for two days. And I don't talk to him, right? I don't ask him how I, I, I've read about it. I know this is, we're in the middle of a blizzard. I also know we'll have this out of the way, and we'll have several days to get hunting. So um, we get out of that. We hike. We can't hunt that mountain. We go down and walk right into a grizzly at 20 yards. The bear stands up. I got my bow. And the bear, I could just tell, was not coming. It just didn't look. Ears weren't back. 
he fired a warning shot and off he went. <laughs> 30 minutes later, we walked into another one, same, same story. So he turns to me and goes, um, Joe, you're from Los Angeles. I said, I'm going to tell you what, there are places in Los Angeles that scare you more than this does. So I said, I can handle this. So we hunted to another mountain range, had one more storm. And he says to me, if we're going to get a sheep, we're going to have to go off the map. And I said, okay. It, he says, it's our area. It's, it's, it's two days away. It's our area. Nobody's been in there. So off we go, two days. So we get over there, and we immediately get into sheep. I end up missing a sheep probably 45 yards. I shot just, it was kind of downhill over something. I had to shoot and went over his back. So we've got a day we should have been thinking about how to get picked up because nobody knows where we are. Kelly finds us in his plane, tells us we're two days from a pickup, and if we don't get picked up tomorrow night, we're in for two more weeks. So he tells Kelly, we'll make an airstrip eight miles south, see us tomorrow night. Well, by then, he has spotted this ram that I ultimately got, okay? Five miles the other direction. So we... we <laughs> We pack up and we start going that way. I said, can we do this? He goes, hell, I don't know. But it shut Kelly up. Let's go out to this ram. So we get down there. Wind is blowing like crazy. I get to within 45 yards, and it's an impossible shot. And I tell him, I go, Cam, we can't take this shot. The arrow's going to go side. He goes, please shoot. Shoot. The arrow hits the ram sideways. The fletch actually ends up hitting him because the wind was so heavy. And he starts running, and everything goes dead still. And they're not fast. And I'm looking at that, and it reminds me of all the goats on Catalina. I drew back. I laid the arrow out in front of him, and it caught him right behind the shoulders, kind of angling forward. So we end up following him, tracking him, shot him again, and he goes into a almost like a crevasse river. It's almost vertical sides, and he's floating in this thing under a little waterfall. So I figured, we've lost this thing. And the guy goes, no, we're, no, we didn't. I had some rope. He went down through the crevices, got to the bottom. We cut him up into pieces and pulled him up the side of that mountain to the waterfall. And by then, it's pitch black. And you've got sheep blood all over you. And you just feel like you're trolling for bears as you head back to camp, right? So we get back to camp, midnight, have something to eat, get up at dawn and start hauling about eight miles south. By late afternoon, not quite dusk, we get the airstrip built, and here comes Kelly, flies in, and um, picks me up first. We've got a Malmute dog with us and comes back to the Malmute dog after he drops me off. Now, I'm going to insert something here that I may, you guys may already know. But in the, the Northwest Territories, there's a guy named Alex Van Bibber. Do you know that name? No. Okay. Alex cut the canal road. Alex was noted by Jack O'Connor as one of the, the great sheep guides. He guided Fred Bear to his goat. I knew that. Okay. I, I knew who he was. I've read all the bear books. So I've lost about eight pounds. I'm sitting in there eating caribou steaks in this, ca in this trapper's cabin. And one of the guides runs in and he said, Mike, Alex, 
Van Bibber is here. He wants to meet you. And I figure I'm hallucinating. This guy's got to be dead, right? And um, the Ram was 12 and a half years old, huge bases, boom backed about 35, huge Ram. Ironically, was the biggest Ram taken on the truck. And uh, Alex comes in and he goes, damn it, Mike, hell of a Ram. And I said, Alex, I got to get you someplace sometime we can talk about your trips with Fred and, and Jack and all those guys. And he says, the hell of a lady, give me a bottle, and Mike and I are going to sit here and talk about this. I sat with that man, and I got my Ram outside. I'm sitting with Alex Van Biver, uh, a freaking legend, and we're having Canadian whiskey in this trapper's cabin, God knows how old it is, eating caribou steaks. Now, if it gets better than that, I just don't know what it is. Oh, man. Yeah, that's incredible. No wonder your son was hooked on sheep hunting. Holy smokes, hearing that story as a kid. Wow. Well, I, yeah, it's interesting, too. I went back the net, two years later. And because the, the guy, if you've ever had this situation and you make a lucky shot with a guy that doesn't know better, he thinks you can do that all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we go back two years later from Mountain Caribou, my buddy Rocky Chisholm, and we have to move camp, and, and we're in a great area, it turns out. And all of a sudden, group of caribou run out. The guy's not right near us, but he's, you know, 50 yards away. This caribou stops broadside. And it just, if you shoot instinctively, there's certain shots you won't take, even if they're close. But I could just see this shot. Just It was, Rocky thinks it was 80 yards away. But I could just see the flight of the arrow. And this thing was a, a two-longer two shot to the heart. It also touched the heart. Thing went about, I don't know, 100 yards and rolled over and, and was dead. And so Rocky is just beside himself. The guy goes, Rocky, he does it every time. That's what Mike does. <laughs> <laughs> and so Rocky goes, you can never shoot another arrow in front of this man. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. That is- so, so maybe this will tie into this. Two years later, I'm booked again. Rocky can't go. So I called Jason, and I didn't tell Jason this at the time, but I paid off Rocky's deposit, Okay. So the price was basically uncapped. And so Jason went with me and got his first introduction to the Northwest Territories, to Arctic Red, and to Doll Sheep. And How old was Jason? Flying, oh, geez. This was probably 19... Had to be close to 2000. So I, I don't know. It's been, what, 20 years, 20 years ago or something? Okay. Um, it was late 20s. Um, yep. and we're flying in and, um, you know, this is the float plan. We're going to a place called Twin Lakes. It's getting buffeted around. The guides are half asleep and, and the scenery is just breathtaking. We come in and land on this beautiful lake and, um, we're seeing caribou and Jason turns to me and goes, dad, this is it. Uh, this is the place. I go, Jason, this is the place. And that was the hook. It was once you've been there and had that experience and see the, the wildness uh, and the purity of that land, he was it was over for Jason, and um, um, so he was hooked. Now one of the other the other tie-ins is this elk hunting I did with Garth Peterson at eight or nine thousand. Jason and I had some trips in there when it was sub-zero, and we get snow in September. I mean it was cold, 
And um, it was the beginning of struggling with, with staying warm, staying dry, and being able to shoot your bow and arrow. And, and if there's anything that was the catalyst for the development of Sitka and then Kuyu, it was this problem of not having so darn much clothing on, you couldn't, your bowstring wouldn't catch. And, mm-hmm. um, and so we, we've told this story several times about being in Idaho and having the same discussion. And that was just the point Jason said, let's go, let me go find out how to do this. And that's where he evolved from. But those early trips with Garth and then into, um, Northwest Territories, and, and Jason's been back in there numerous times with different outfitters, and you know, a lot of his videos are in those areas um, uh, that we hunted uh, and that the surrounding it, outfitters hunt. It makes a lot of sense, Mike, because, you know, trad guys, you know, we love our wool, um, you know, and there's something, uh, uh, you know, just special about being out there hunting in your wool, but, you know, the wool's heavy uh and you know it can get waterlogged even though it keeps you warm and and then right. you know you you wear something like kuyu with the all the the layering systems and stuff and it, it's just uh it really is a game changer being able to yeah, I, take uh, layers off and I'm, I'm 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 not done thinking about wool okay um I, I don't think, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the old guy in the group. Yeah. I don't want to turn my back on that product. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I think it's time to take a deep breath, take a deep dive look at how, what we can do with that product, because I agree with everything you're saying. I think there's a place for it. Um, yeah. I see people doing things with it. Um, uh, we, we use wool. We use merino wool in a lot of our stuff. It's woven with an nylon in it. Uh, I just think there's a, um, there's a place for it. And, you know, because the, the initiation, the whole process was trying to find a waterproof, quiet, tight-fitting garment you could shoot your bow in. That came really yeah. before the layering underneath. The, the layering underneath wasn't the problem. It was how do you stay dry and quiet and not get your bowstring. But I think... Um, yeah, and staying, I, I just staying think you quiet keep is the, your key, mind open. the key thing there. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I'm really happy to hear you say that. And and quiet for bow hunters, you know, for especially guys that are wanting to get close, it uh, it's essential to, to have quiet clothing. Well, and I don't think um, I don't think a few ounces difference in weight in a guy that's not climbing mountains every day really matters. And um, I think we can we can do a nice layering system with, with different shades of wool and outer coating that works and is snug fitting. Again, I think the issue is always that last layer that prevents the wool from getting wet in those situations. Um, and yet it's quiet. Uh, but I think uh, because um, in fact I had this conversation this morning. Um, uh, the guy that we've got back, he's just a phenomenal guy. He's been in the military and trained how to shoot and sniper shoot and all that stuff. And um, the thing that, and I don't know how you guys approach this when people go, why don't you use something that lets you shoot from further away or, you know, why don't you get all that? Um, I, and I think, and I respect anybody's reason for whatever they do, but I want, I, I want to get inside 
the deer's safety mechanisms. I want to be where where they have a chance to find me, smell me, see me, hear me. I, I don't want to be so far away that they don't get to use any of their their talents. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I, like I know I know the guy being inside it. Go ahead. Uh, the the thing that you guys um, and it's important everywhere, but um, to know that one tiny sound. It's not correct. Could could lose the best buck you've ever seen. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That that is to me. That's that's the essence of what we do. Is how do you make allowances for the land, the noise, the visual? Do you take all that in? Because you are now in the boiler room of a ten-year-old buck who's been taught everything he needs to know to make you out and be gone. And I think when you, when you solve that problem, there's got to be just this sense of achievement that's um, uh, phenomenal. Because I've done it stalking deer. And I can only imagine with whitetails, uh, it's just when you put that all together and you make the shot and it works, it's got to be a huge thrill. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I'm glad you're, uh, you're not giving up on the wool and, James and I talk about it a lot is I know Kuyu's done a good job with their Merino and the, you know, even their, uh, synthetic down or, uh, insulated kind of puffy jacket. I, that one's really quiet, but I've talked with James and, uh, Drew over at Selway and we're always scheming, you know, about polar fleece and wool and, you know, cool to see right. something come out like that because all the stuff it seems like all the stuff they make a lot of the stuff people make for bow hunters these days like you said it's not for that bow hunter getting within 10 or 15 yards it's you know bino harnesses and all these things that are clanky i mean that's why i don't wear that stuff just because <laughs> like you said you spent okay. 20 days chasing an elk and you finally get there and the sun shines off your you know coated jacket and it takes off that's all it takes you know exactly you know an elk is a perfect example they are they are merciless they have they, they did not mind breaking your heart over and over again um and and it's it's that it's getting inside that that hunt zone that that's when they're super alert and uh and being able to figure that out and and have clothing I don't know if you read. I don't know if you've read Pope's book, Hunting with a Bow and Arrow, um, but he talks about the Indian issue, and that guy would hunt in a loincloth for the, the very reasons you're talking about. Yeah. There's no noise, and and uh, barefoot, which made you very sensitive to the ground, and um, that's kind of what I grew up on, and and, and there was no, we didn't have range finders, we didn't have you know, compound blows that would do what they do. And, and, and no way am I disparaging that. It, it's just, I grew up with that image of an Indian so knowing the sound that a squirrel made if a, if a, if a fox went by and had a different, different voice for every animal that wasn't uh, either a predator or was a predator. He knew everything. He knew the voices, the sound, the smells. And I guess that's, kind of what I was reaching for when I got into the sport 
Um, and Mike, that, that that is so awesome to hear because we're we're obviously a lot younger than you, but me and Bob relate to everything you're saying right now. And I, I mean, not to speak for Bob, but I know that we often feel like we're out uh, playing like we're Indians while we're hunting. I mean, uh, it, just the romantic side of, of things, of the way things once were. Uh, that's that's it in a nutshell for me and i'm also you know i've shot some really nice animals no you'll never see my name in a record book okay because i don't know what that is i don't i I don't even glenn st charles after he did it to prove that we could do it question have we created uh, a goal and instead of an interesting fact about our hunting, have we diverted people away from the experience to the reward of having your name in a book and, and, and getting sponsorship for things? And um, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm critical of anybody. I just, I just that's not for me, and it's really did, none of that fit into why I got into this. Yeah, I was thinking. Um, something in the mountains in, in Northern California. Uh, I'm not a trophy hunter at all. I'm a meat hunter, okay? Uh, well, like Jim Doherty. I don't see him. Jim is a phenomenal guy. Um, he says, I'm a trophy hunter till the first legal buck comes by, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it was day one, uh, and I'm sitting against this tree in this most gorgeous area, and here comes probably a year and a half old fork and arm buck, almost walks almost up to within a few feet of me, and I just go, uh, hey, you're lucky it's me. <laughs> I I don't want this hunt to end. Why don't you go have a good day? And the deer just looked at me and then walked off. And um, I don't know why I felt good about that. And uh, I've shot small deer before, but it doesn't matter to me. But I just wasn't ready to end my hunt on day one. I wanted to do more of yeah. that, right? I've also kind of always been kind of drawn to areas that have uh, large mature animals because I feel that those areas usually have a well-balanced herd and they, they represent all age classes on the landscape. And, and that, like you said, it's cool to be around big ones, but as a um, traditional bow hunter, you know, we're, we're hunting the shot and looking for the one that's going to give you that, uh, clean ethical shot in, in close range. The, uh, the other thing I've, I've noticed, I'm sure you guys have seen the same thing. The further you get away from the crowd, the more you get into the bigger deer. And it's that extra hill you're willing to climb, the extra hour you're willing to walk, um, the extra care you take. And all of a sudden you stop seeing hunters and you start seeing bigger deer and they're looking for the same thing I am, a remote place to go. Um, so it is it is about finding a mountain you can call your own because there's nobody else there. One of the fringe benefits is there's often bigger deer there. Yeah. Absolutely. More wild deer, right? More wild places. Yeah, and, and you just, I, I, you, know, you get into a really remote place and yeah. Uh, it seems like kind of egotistical, but you go, hey, man, this is my place. This feels like mine. I own this canyon, right? There's nobody here. Right. Uh, and 
just to sit back and watch the watch the area slowly turn from gray to light and watching the animals move and you're just you're folded into that environment uh and their behavior is like it would be even if you weren't there i love that and i love every every bit of the wildlife whether it's up here the quail or whatever animals i see um it's fun to be part of that community and fit in yeah absolutely and i know that you guys that were uh bow hunting in the early days had the uh, had the option of going out to the islands uh, the catalina catalina islands which i've mentioned on this podcast i never got to hunt but i spent a lot of time out there as a kid um right. my parents were sea urchin divers and so i was just always right, right off the ends of those islands and, and seeing uh the different critters that were on those islands um maybe you could speak to that i got out of graduate school in 68 and it was it was literally the golden era for bow hunting in California. We had you know legends in the Aranco Bow Club. We had guys doing amazing things, and it was a year round experience. You would January we would go to Arizona for javelina. Then you'd come back in the spring and you would hunt wild boar. The first deer season started in July. You could get a tag for that. There was another season, the second tag. At one point, there was for, there was briefly a tag for L.A. County. Um, and then in, in September and October, you could go out of state to hunt. Um, and the California deer season went to January 31st. And um, I killed a lot of bucks after the rut uh, up on the ridges they tried to put their weight back on. And we could spot and stalk them, and um, <laughs> we would we would go down into the uh, desert areas by the Salton Sea where they have these canals. And July first, the frog season opened. Okay, so we get the archery club down there, and of course we stay up uh, having beverages till midnight, and then start shooting frogs. <laughs> and it was just one of those camaraderie type things that was. Uh, it's it so much fun. A lot of good shots, a lot of, a lot of good, good people. It was just a great way to begin starting the archery year off. Uh, so awesome. Uh, at what point did you start making it out to Catalina? 68. 68. In fact, it's ironic. As soon as I heard about it, um, when I got to town, there were bow shots, which weren't there when I left town. And I walked right into um, um, a guy named Leon and a guy named Bob. Bob Jensen is a freaking legend in California bowling. Uh, he's probably got every other deer in the record book. And nice guys kind of took me under the wing. I started shooting every Tuesday night with Aranko. We had a few tournaments. And then through their contact, off I went to first Santa Cruz Island. Um which is interesting too. I go on this hunt, and um, probably the youngest guy on the trip. I had no idea that the ultimate trophy was a black ram on this island. And as luck would have it, I, I saw this black ram and I heard of about a hundred, and they were filing by me. And it just so happened to get close, and I shot him. And um, when I brought him into camp, you think I'd won the Oscar. And it was it was pretty dang exciting. Uh, 
And so from that point, I'd hunt Catalina twice a year and Santa Cruz once a year. Wow. And, and did they have, couldn't take them out. Yeah. Did they have elk on the, out there at that time? Santa Rosa Island had elk. Santa Rosa had elk. I believe. Um, but you had 20,000 goats in Catalina. Yeah, you 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 couldn't take another host, and you know Chuck Adams even commented about how important it is to shoot at real animals in the off season, whether it's squirrels or whatever. Well, uh, when you're shooting perpetually all day, at mostly run, you know running targets, they're not fast, but you're shooting at live animals on really rugged terrain. Um, you get pretty good at it. You know, you do that three times a year. And then you're hunting 30 or 40 days a year because you can go right into L.A. County and hunt. You spend a lot of time with your bow in your hands and shooting a lot of arrows. And and, and unfortunately, the, the islands have gone away. Uh, through drought and, and mountain lions, the hunting in L.A. County is a fraction of what it was. Now you can't get into the Sierras without getting three or four points before you can get back to your favorite area, sometimes five points. So it's it's, it's really curtailed probably 70, 80% of the things we used to do that really built a lot of great archers and shooters. Um, and I was just lucky to be around when that was happening. Yeah. Same stuff's happening up here with a lot of our general, you know, archery elk seasons are they're right. going away pretty fast. And, you know, I know Oregon and Colorado and Idaho, you know, in the last 30, 40 years had some incredible elk hunters come out of there, but. That's because you're able to hunt elk every year for a month. and Right. Well, I tried to get an out-of-state elk. I couldn't get outside. I was two minutes into the wait, and there were 8,000 people ahead of me. Yeah. And um, so I've got a deer tag. I'm going to go up over the uh, Labor Day weekend with Adam, my oldest son. And um, we usually either pack in or drive in, and then uh, we'll hunt four or five days. He's got his elk tag, so... Uh, there's some big deer, by the way, up where we find these elk. So um, I'll be hunting deer, and he'll be hunting elk. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. But it's, it's just it's more difficult. you got to work harder these days. Just uh, The hunting is to find a place to hunt, you know? Yeah. For sure. So uh, that's pretty awesome that you've raised uh, raised your boys to be bow hunters and um, you know, Bob is fortunate to have come from that as well, being born into bow hunting and raised, uh, as a bow hunter. I came, uh, as a late, um, adult onset hunter or whatever, and I uh, didn't have those privileges. Um, you know, I'm always jealous of that. So that's, that's really special. Um, what, um, what I made know, you, what made you move over to archery? Um, well, I, I started with the rifle in my twenties. Honestly, my, uh, my mom married a hunter and, uh, my stepdad was, uh, you know, a really hardcore rifle hunter. And he got me started right away. Once, uh, I moved down here and he, he got me into rifle hunting. And as soon as I got the bug, he looked at me and he said, you need to get into bow hunting. And I was like, oh, well, really? do you bow hunt? He says, and he says, no, I've never tried it, but if I was your age, that's where the opportunity lays now. It, it's so hard to get rifle tags and the, the woods are so crowded. He goes, if I was your age, I, I would get into archery. And, and it took me a couple wow. of years to take that advice. 
but he he knew nothing about it, but he was pushing it on me pretty heavy. That was that was phenomenal that he had the insight to do that. Yeah, well, he realized right. in Oregon that that uh, we had a thirty day elk season uh, that was over the counter versus a five day rifle season that you had to put in for and draw. And right. and uh, so he 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 definitely saw. Um, you know, when he was hunting elk, he used to get a 30 day rifle season and have the woods to himself. And so he, he really saw the difference there and, and, uh, instilled that in me to, to give that a try. So yeah, that was a big influence, um, that I had there for sure. Yeah, and I so, do think that's uh, true. I mean, I think you more, you did, there are more opportunities. So. Yeah. And, you know, as guys that are really passionate about hunting, it's, like you had talked about earlier, it's not always about filling your tag. It's about time in the woods, um, spending and, and, and time up here, uh, with I, the know, animals. You know, you've got, I don't know, I, I can, I've got a, an AO tag, we call it here. It's archery, archery only. only. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to make that commitment, that tag is good through all season. You, so you can hunt bow and then you can hunt with the rifle hunters. Yeah, with your bow, you so, can hunt so the here, rifle season. So you get you get to do both, and um, um, I, I run into very and, few and your AO on, tag on the the AO tag also allows you to hunt most of the state where the the rifle hunters have to kind of pick between C and B and D zones and stuff, right? Exactly, exactly. It just I, yeah. and I, it's it's a very fair exchange, um, and if you're a bow hunter, it, it's uh, it just gives you like you say just a lot more choices. So there was a uh, hunt that you shared with your son uh, for moose that has uh, been well uh, viewed. Um, it was, you know, videoed and whatnot. But I, I'd love to hear the, I'd love to hear the story from your perspective if you care to, to share it with us. Yeah, so, um, it's interesting. Um, Going back to a guy named Jay Massey and his book uh, Thousand Campfires. Have you read that book? I have not read that book, but I'm very familiar with it. I'd like to get my hands on a copy. You you will feel like you wrote it, okay? Because just sensing who you are, you'll feel this. You know, this guy is reading my mind. And Jay talked about hunting moose and really respected the animals um, and floating the rivers, and I, and I just. I got caught up in that. And um, a few years ago, Jason wants me to go on this grizzly bear hunt, right? And so I'm going to go along. I'm not really anticipating shooting a grizzly because it's a gun hunt. And uh, But I want to just see the environment. Well, <laughs> we got there. It was a negative 30, okay, centigrade. So flying in in the airplane, you couldn't, in the single seat plane, you couldn't see the propeller from the snow. So when we get there, the river's frozen. So we have a week or so of breaking ice, you know, trying literally to get out of the mountains. There were no bear, but we come around this band, and here is about, I'd say two or three yards away, is this beautiful bull moose. And our guide... Lance Cronenberger calls him in to within 15 yards of us and we're in a raft. We're not hunting moose. I was so struck 
by the beauty of that animal and the size, uh, that it all kind of flashed back to what Massey had been saying about it. So uh, nothing was said at the time. So later on, a year or two later, Jason goes, hey, Dad, I'll take you any place in the world. Where do you want to go? I want to go most on The best place he knew of was on the McMillan um, with um, our outfitting group. And so that's what led to hunting moose. And um, I've been very, I'm very fortunate, you know, shoot doll sheep and, and some other nice animals. But you call a moose in, and he's breaking trees down to get at you, and you got your bow with you. I'm going to tell you something. You're out of breath, your heart's pounding, and you realize this has got to be just right. You want to make sure you make a good shot. And so this animal is coming, and you can just feel your your blood pressure and your pulse rate going up, and you just have to breathe and control it. And then um, when you make the shot and it works out, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's euphoria if you're a hunter. And so th- that animal, uh, it just captured everything I wanted that experience to be, which doesn't happen usually. And so that's kind of how that um, we filmed it which is another, if you haven't done this, being on film is awkward if you're a shooter. Um, it's just an added pressure. There's people, you know, more people around. But all that worked well because we had a great camera group. And um, um, so that's how that trip evolved, and that was kind of why we did it. Yeah, it was an incredible uh, video. And if you guys that are listening haven't watched it yet, it, I think the name of it is Those Abiding Gifts. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yes, yes. And it's on the Kuyu. Just look it up on Kuyu, and you'll see it. Awesome video. Get you pumped up. Um, before we get off here, I want to talk about a couple things. For one, I want to know sure. your, your shot setup, what you're shooting and everything. But before we get to that, I know you, you did another little video and just talked about, and I've heard Jason talk a lot about, you know, just making it happen. And you kind of brought it up a little bit when you talked about that sheep hunt, you know, a lot of us, you know, we're all blue collar guys on this. Um, and, but, but you, if you don't go and make it happen, like a sheep hunt for you was a huge deal. You know, obviously it was a lot of money for you. You saved up for a couple of years. You're, you had a family at the time. I'm sure your wife wasn't super stoked, but it changed <laughs> your life. I mean, you have gone back how many times it changed your son's life? Right. Like, you know, for, for and and I know people that have that are really into like hunting Africa. I have a friend of mine who's you know father in law. He he went over there one time, and now he goes back all the time. Like it, it right. can can totally change your life. You know? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I um, and, and you've, you've just hit uh, maybe the key mental point in all of our careers is you know where does this lead to? And for some people, the stuff in me when he's talked about and Green Hills and it's Africa. But for me, it was always Robert's service, you know, and, and the rivers that God knows where they go and the coldness and, and, and all of that. So I just wanted to experience that. Probably what, like I said, what pushed me over the edge was my dad. But I told Jason when I got back, and he's done done some tapes with um, Junior on some Junior on this. I said, Jason, do not wait, do not wait. Um, and I'll tell you that goes all the way back to my training uh, in physical therapy, treating veterans, 
some of them had strokes, and they told me, Mike, in your life, do not wait for things. Do not wait. It can end. It can change overnight. Get it done. Be responsible. But get out and 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 get these things checked off your bucket list. So, uh, and I talked to guys, even guys that asked me for advice on, they've never hunted the Northwest Territories, for example. And I would suggest, and I've said this before on in other interviews, I really like the Northwest Territories. The guides along that mountain range are all wonderful. I happen to know Arctic Red, and of course, they're wonderful. But mountain caribou, in my opinion, spot and stock, mountain caribou, they're not migrating. They're, they're oftentimes on the same hillside, the dull sheep. You have the same grizzly bear issues. You've got moose in the area. Uh, you can do a combo, maybe caribou and moose. But I would make that, it's a reachable, financially achievable trip into this phenomenal area. Um, I don't discourage sheep hunting with a bow or a traditional bow. But when you come to camp with a traditional bow and you've just paid now 20000 for this hunt, these guides take it more than serious. I mean, they take it personally to get you an animal. And so you can just feel the, the blood pressure in the group on every stock, everything you're doing. And um, um, I, I just think it, it's a softer, more resilient. Uh, Jason's first hunt was for caribou up there. Uh, introduction to that area. And if you do it young, then you just start, you'll see what will happen. You'll keep coming back. If it's your thing, it gets you hooked. You'll find a way to go back. <laughs> no, no, you absolutely will. Now, we... We did all backpack hunting at that time. Arctic Red now has horses, and they still do backpacking. <laughs> the horses have some advantages in that you don't you don't tear up your legs getting into spots. But having just two of you with hundreds of thousands of square miles to yourself, you and the guide, and you just take off. You're not. You'd have no camp to go back to. It's on your back. And you can just pick the most beautiful, scenic uh, evening place to camp, put up your tents, have your dinner with views of things that many people have never seen. And then the next day you just continue this journey. Um, that's really a great experience too. So right. over the years, have you always shot a longbow, Mike? Maybe you can kind of give us the rundown on your equipment uh, as far as the bows and arrows. Yeah, I, I, I started off with a... Um, lemon broken longbow that I had to cut down and make work. Then I went to a Lemonwood, um, um, called Sherwood or something. Again, I kept going up in weight, obviously. We got 25 and 35 pounds. Then I bought a recurve, a used recurve from a uh, state champion, Les Speaks. I was young. It took me most of a year at 50 cents a week to get this bow. And I loved it, right? Oh, I loved it so much. I broke it. And, um, my dad said, um, that can't be fixed. And I talked to him, I couldn't be fixed, right? So I just started saving again. I went back to my other balls. Well, Christmas comes up. And um, in hindsight, he kept asking me, what are you saving up for? I said, I want a bear Kodiak. That's what I want, okay? And they were 49 bucks or something. And I said, about halfway there. And that was kind of, it was a kind of a sidebar conversation. So Christmas morning, I get my usual dozen arrows and a book. 
you know, I, I, you know, I mean, the hard way. Every year I got an archery book. Okay, I got a million of them now. And he says, oh, by the way, I took your bow up to um, take his bow, but he fixed it. And um, I said, what? I didn't want to wake you up last night, but I put it, I bought you a new sleeve. I put it up on your um, your bow rack. You know, so I look like a scalded dog running in there, grabbed it, came out. When I pulled it off, it was a new Kodiak. Good dad. And I, I can still remember. So then I tried to explain to my dad, this boat shoots hard, Dad. Well, I got these hay bales set up. And I said, I don't think it's big enough, Dad. Just shoot the damn thing. <laughs> it went through the hay bales and through the side of the stucco garage wall. <laughs> so uh, we had to add reinforcements to the target. It was a 50-pound, I think, 64-inch um, Kodiak. And that thing would really shoot 1959 was the year of the ball. So that was my awesome. that was a, a very nice thing for my dad to do. So when did you switch back to the longbow then? Well, I um, I, uh, let me just tell you first. I never count the bows I have in my garage. <laughs> this is just this is just something I would offer as advice. So that when your wife is on a tear and wants to know how many damn bows do you have, you can honestly say, I don't know. <laughs> so don't ever count them. <laughs> Perfect. Good advice. So um, I've been caught up with, um, you know, the, I saw Robin Dead, Howard Hill shooting stuff with his bow. And um, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to buy uh, all bamboo, fiberglass, Howard Hill longbow. And learn and. And it actually, to be frank with you, fed into my style of shooting better than the other bows. Um, it was smoother. Uh, you have a very tiny rest. And it was one of those bows, um, it kind of goes right where you're looking. Um, I'll tell you a story that happened, though, maybe a week and a half ago. I've got a, a Howard Hill bow, and I uh, and I call out occasionally and just take my bows for a walk and shoot them. But behind my chicken coop, there's always a bunch of ground squirrels. So I take this bow. I haven't shot it in, I don't know, months. I always walk around the corner of the, the thing with the arrow on. Ground squirrel takes off about 20 yards away. I don't even think about the shot and hit it in the head and roll it, right? Yeah. And that's, to me... Um, why you shoot that? Uh, another example, Jay, we're calling in Havelina. And uh, I'm with Jay, and it's coming right to him, and I don't know what happened, but the thing turns and it takes off. And literally, I'm looking at this Havelina as this arrow takes him right there in the shoulder. And I look down, and I had shot that arrow without any conscious awareness. And Jay says, man, good shot. And I look down, and I... I I just didn't even, I didn't go through the mechanism. I didn't think, you know, draw, anchor. I just saw the arrow flying. And, and, and I find with, with longbows, for me, it just rewards that kind of shooting. I think that's where Howard Hill and his trick shooting came from. And uh, you, can, you can shoot well with any bow, but that particular bow um, really does that for me. 
Well, you, you answered my question. I didn't even get a chance, chance to ask it. Um, I was going to ask kind of your shooting style and it sounds like, uh, you're, uh, an instinctive shooter that really, uh, just allows to make a quick fluid shot, you know, and, and me and Bob were just talking about this about an hour before we got you on the phone on how these D-shaped longbows really acquire the target fast and how Howard Hill could just hit anchor and let it fly. Um, there, there's something, there's something to be said about that style of shooting. Yeah, you, um, I, I do, when I, I shoot mostly swinging targets. I, I rarely set a target up and shoot at it yeah. like a target target. Um, target, and some of your older shooters will recognize this target shooting, tournament shooting, in my opinion, it, it, there's a risk to start forming bad habits because you're putting pressure on yourself. And um, if if I go, I'll go through a period of time where I go, I'm not shooting at anything that isn't moving. I, it, I mean, if I go out, I'm not going to target pass, I'm going to shoot at squirrels or I'm going to shoot at the moving target. And what it does is it, it fixates your eye on the target and everything else happens on autopilot. Yeah, that's, and I, that's and I think, shooting right there. Now, if you read the Howard Hill's book, and he talks about shooting, he will go through all the things that he does. But in his final paragraph, he says, I never think about my shooting technique when I'm shooting at an animal. I focus on the spot I want to hit, and I let it go on autopilot. Because yeah. if you're thinking about the process, it's like a golfer. It's just got to, it's got to be so natural. Um, and, and for me, you know, bouncing tennis balls and shooting at them and she, you know, doing kicking things and, and intentionally letting the squirrel run before I shoot at it. Um, all that crap about is my finger in my corner of my mouth or did I draw the arrow all the way back? None of that even is relevant in a situation like that. In fact, if you look at the moose shot, uh, I don't think I got 26 inch draw on that bow. Yeah. But that was purely a shot that had to be made, and it had to be made right now. I, I could not let him take another step, or the leg would have been in the wrong place. The true so, D shaped longbow, it also seems to not only being, it's very forgiving to arrow spine, or like you said, drawing half draw you know, or three quarters draw to full draw. It seems to be really forgiving to, uh, to that style of shooting. And, and, uh, by nature of design, the bow, the bows are very, very quiet. Oh yeah. Very quiet. Very quiet. Um, and in fact, um, I, I had, when I, before I went on the sheep, I, I intentionally shot and took, two Howard Hill longbows for that very reason. And um, because I knew the weather would be bad. I knew I'd be tired. And it's just the bow that I knew was going to help me, not hurt me. Um, and uh, they, you know, Howard Hill Archery makes a great bow. They stayed with the same same forms. Um, they do a great job. And I, I, I have four or five of those bows right now. Do you find difficulty in getting those uh, uh, hill style bows or, you know, D shaped long bows to shoot well with a bow mounted quiver 
Um, and, uh, or what, what, uh, system do you use to, to carry arrows while, uh, while big game hunting? That's, that's a phenomenal question. And, and, and I don't know how many years ago it was, but, but Chuck Adams, who's a student of the physics of archery and a hell of a shot will tell you that with every arrow you remove from your quiver, you slightly change the point of impact for your arrow. And uh, so, so when you put a quiver on your bow, you're going to, even as a long bow, you're going to change the flight pattern as the arrows go away. The other is it's more prone to side winds. You've got almost a sail on your bow if you're in the wind. And um, lastly, it's hard to get a cover for that. So uh, I use the, the cat quiver like the old Glen St. Charles quiver, where you put the arrows up under a cover, they go on your pack, so you can carry a dozen arrows, they're out of the rain, and your bow is free of any uh, any weight and also the, the, the side ones. So I, and I, prefer, I think the bow, my bias, I'm sure people have found that I might be wrong. I think my bow, with my technique, I shoot cleaner and better without the quiver on it. Yeah. Yeah, I I found that that to be true with with especially with that style of bow, like a recurve with a big riser, can seem to help hold those arrows. Um, but man, a longbow cling of uh, of a you know, not having that that bow mounted quiver, they just shoot so much better and quieter. And right, um, it's something that me and Bob are always talking about. Bob's come up with some good solutions for he shooting a a D shaped longbow presently and mm -hmm. i've gone back and forth from them um what about arrows and broadhead um has that changed over the years and what what did you use before Never. and what are you using now on the island the only head that that uh, uh, this is not just me but the only head you can shoot directly into a rock over there it would stick in the rock you could pull it out and still use it was a zawiki and so um, I like the, the Zawiki Deltas. I like the Zawiki Eskimos. That's all I use. And uh, are you a wood arrow shooter or? Yes, I shoot wood arrows. Or... I shot all kinds of arrows. I'm not opposed to mm -hmm. other arrows. I, I think they fly more quietly. I think they fly for me better out of my longbows for whatever reason. I can shoot yep. very well with aluminum arrows. And God knows I've got a thousand arrows in the garage. And when I'm shooting at squirrels and rock patches, I shoot the aluminum, obviously, because they're a one-way ticket. So, um, but I like wood arrows. I like making them. And uh, yep. the, the, the suppliers make great arrows. It's not because they don't make great arrows. But it's kind of, a, and I don't know if you go through this or not, but it, 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 it starts about now is my ritual of buying the shafts, spinning them all, making sure they're straight, check the spine, um, do the fletching, you know, do all that, taper them, put the broadheads on, sharpen the broadheads. All of that is part of my mental rev up for the hunting season. And um, oh, there, yeah. I don't know why, but I'll always pick my my favorite arrows, my quote starting arrow, you know, um, which is probably silly, but um, I, I just feel and I file all my heads and. There's just there's just something about that process for me that um, uh, it's just innate in what I like doing. I like 
Um, I, I know against you know replaceables or any of that, but for me, it's just one more step that I want to be the responsible party to the quality of that arrowhead. Um, mm. And I, you know, they shot, they kill. You know, I shot that moose with one wicket, and that was it, and it was down. Um, so I, you know, they work. I know they work. They won't bend. Um, they'll crack some bones for you. So um, that's why I do that. Yeah, there's there's something special about shooting your own arrows that you craft yourself. I've I've always built my own, and I couldn't imagine not. Um, it's just, right. It's kind of like packaging your own meat. You know, when you open that package of meat, you know what's going to be in that package because you put it there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Um, and, I, and I don't know about you. When I'm shooting woods, I, I usually leave it an inch or so longer than I need to, um, in case I happen to be out and I break one off the tip. I bring a sharpener with me. I can sharpen it, put another broadhead on it if I need a backup arrow, that kind of thing. Um, just little extra things like that I can get done with my wood arrows. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. I actually. Um, have been in that situation and wasn't prepared. I really should be bringing a taper tool, like you said, and being able to uh, to uh, take that arrow and, and rebuild it in the field um, can definitely have value for sure. Yeah, just another, yeah, you know, when you make your own arrows, that's, you know, you you got I got taper tools everywhere. I just stick one in, and uh, I usually stick an extra knock or two in, and uh, some glue. Um, and, and, you know, how often do you use it? I don't know, once a season, it's every two seasons. But when I needed it, I was darn glad I had it. So I see I see you've been uh, passing it on to the next generation. I've seen some photos and some Kuyu ads with Cash, and and uh, I've heard uh, some guys running into you at bow shoots with Cash in California. So um, right. it's, it's good to hear that you've got Cash out there shooting the longbow. Well, yeah, he, he doesn't need any encouragement. <laughs> we were up uh, he's 12 and um, I think he was 12 and we hunted the north slope of Alaska right and uh, bad weather the caribou really weren't coming through where we were so we're doing a lot of hiking over the tundra and if you've done that it's just probably the most fatiguing type of terrain and um, it's going to be light fairly late at that time of the year and so the guide turns to Cash, and he goes, Cash, you know, it's uh, this is a steep hill coming up. It's getting pretty late. What do you think? And Cash looks at him and says, uh, I'm not a soft hunter. And he says, it's only 6 o'clock. We got four more hours. Let's get up this hill. <laughs> right? The guy looks at me and goes, okay, Cash, let's go. And he was off. That's awesome. That's really great. Yeah, he's a tough kid. He's a, he's a great kid, and um, but also he's not been just like I did with with Jason and Adam, and Jason did the same thing. You, you got to you provide the opportunity, but there's no there's no compulsion that the the child has to like the sport. Doesn't need to do it. Doesn't have to be a hundred. Doesn't have to. You just want to make sure that he's had that experience. Have the opportunity to try it. Yeah. Right. Well, Mike, this has been a super awesome conversation, and um, we really appreciate your time. And I really hope uh, that our paths cross. I uh, I do wander south, and I'm going to try to do it more often. Uh, I'm wanting to get after those pigs, and 
I want to come check out some of those bow shoots in California. And um, Brian has invited me down a few times, and I'm, I need to take him up on it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully our paths cross down there, and I get to uh, shake your hand and maybe share a campfire. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, we talked to Brian about that because um, that's readily available. That's things we're going to do. Um, we actually gave away two bull, uh, pig hunts at the state body that we'll oh, probably awesome. be putting, to, we'll be putting that together probably after the first of the year in the spring. So, um, um, and it would be awesome. I think, um, with, with the kinds of, uh, audiences you have, the kind of, your people are kind of the people we like, um, Maybe we could do something together. Maybe we could get at, uh, some film and some interview and and and, um, and make it a real deal. So talk to us about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, appreciate the the offer and the opportunity. And um, do you got uh, anything in closing, Bob? Or yeah, I just again thanks for your time, Mike. And for me, you know, we're we're younger guys, you know, comparatively and. You know, obviously Sitka and Kuyu and the stuff your son done's been kind of huge in the hunting community in our our lifetimes, and it's just so cool to sit here and talk to Jason's dad, and he is just like a little kid still out behind the chicken coop shooting the ground squirrels with his longbow out there every night. It's just it's just so awesome, and that's the beauty of bow hunting and especially traditional archery. And I mean, like you said, our audience is no different than you and we just love shooting the bow and the flight of the arrow and it never gets old so that's just it's just awesome man we really appreciate it so please i mean you talk about me taking my time you guys take an enormous amount of time to do this and the message you are carrying is 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 so important at least to me and i think as people listen to this They'll realize we're not trying to sell anybody on anything, but we're trying to to tell you about something that you may not know exists that you might want to try. Exactly. Absolutely. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for sticking with us. We appreciate the support. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail. Dot com. Check us out on Instagram, DragQuest, and keep the wind in your face this September. Shoot a big old nice bucker bull. My head is full of wanderlust, my quiver is full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few.
Frosty before the sun comes up, the geese are on the wing. The deer are fat and happy, no, they don't suspect a thing. I can't take it any longer, I've got to breathe some air. The only cure for what I've got is a week or so out there. I've got Nimrod neurosis, long on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie, true and 